Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's great to be back from about 10 days with a cousin's reunion. We went up to uh, Yellowstone area and had a great time uh, racing snowmobiles, at least some of us did. Uh, and it was just a great time uh, being around people that you've known all your life and, and love. Uh, my brother and his wife, Linda, they flew up and Alice and I drove up and back, which is another story in itself, but a uh, great time with uh, family and uh, just enjoying God's creation. But as I was thinking about that, I came across... Uh, Kind of a highbrow taste, you know, we're uh, facing the Academy Awards, Oscars, and all that kind of things. Well, you know, Shakespeare was a pretty uh, well-known screenwriter as well as um, one who would write things people would read. Quite frankly, I remember when I was in junior high, high school, I tried to read William Shakespeare, and I couldn't quite understand most of the words he had to say. But but if you get the drift, you kind of got a great story that he would share. And I came across this, uh, particularly one of his stories as you like it and it's a story of two brothers and so that kind of just caught my attention who became alienated when the younger brother and that even more caught my attention since I'm the younger brother usurps the elder's place and has him exiled into a forest in classic Shakespearean fashion mistaken identities romance and folly all collide to produce a good laugh The play also included a plain-speaking fool, I guess I can relate to that as well, but plain-speaking fool who gives one of the most famous speeches of any Shakespeare play. The fool summarizes the seven stages of a man's life. How many knew there were seven stages to your life? Anybody knew that? It's more than just born and die, I guess. From infancy to old age, yet the most quoted part of the speech is the very first line in which the fool says, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women, women merely players. You know, when you think about that, that's often uh, how we could look at life, and even as we look through life through the page of Scripture, is that life is a stage. And there are people watching what's going up on stage, but there is a divine one who is the spectator, looking what is happening in people's lives. Now, in this particular case, sometimes when people think about this one who is looking down upon us, we're thinking that he's looking to catch us doing that which is wrong rather than that which is right, and that he's not looking for us to, to uh, be successful or uh, to experience what life is all about. But I, I, I'm really convinced that, that God, as he looks at us as being on the stage and we're the players, that I guess if you're going to take a corny perspective from the Academy Awards uh, ceremonies that will be, is that he wants all of us to get an Oscar. He, he, he wants us all to experience what life is, all, is to its fullest. But as you think about that, something's gone extremely wrong, and so everyone's not going to win. And, and as you look at history, and you could describe that as his story, it, it begins in a, in a great way. God created everything, and it was good, very good. And, and then something happened, and that was sin, and this earth became fallen into all that which goes wrong in life. But then you look at the rest of the story recorded for us in Scripture, and it's a pretty big book, depending on how, how thin the print is in your Bible. Uh, there are a lot of pages here, but really from Genesis 3 on, it's really a story of God bringing back people to himself, that, that he wants us to come into that which life was always meant to be, which is in vital relationship with the living God who loves us and cares about us. And as you get to... To open up this book, and as you begin at the beginning, which is the book of Genesis, which really means beginnings, then you get to Exodus, and Exodus uh, really is the sequel to Genesis. Exodus, uh, you take the Greek word there, it means 
outweigh or way out. And so we've, we've named this series God's Way Out. And as we've looked at it, just to give you a quick review of this, uh, Bill shared the last couple of uh, Sundays. We began looking at the sequels, and it's all about there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And if you know the story where the, to have a sequel, you have to have a, what do you call that, the beginning? <laughs> well, prequels before the how does that work? Prequel? The original. I guess you have to have the original, all right? So if you ever read the original, what happened is that, that God rescued his people through Joseph and brought them to Egypt and brought them to prominence in that land. But then there was a, there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And these people who came into the promised land with, with abundance as God blessed them in the, in the early years of being there, uh, they were now under slavery. And I'm sure just as Joseph, just as the Pharaoh had forgotten uh, the God who was the behind-the-scenes power behind Joseph, God's people began to forget. And so as we begin this journey into God's way out, what God wants us to do is either get to know God for the first time or not forget the God who brought us into life and relationship with him. And in chapter 2, we looked at as Bill shared, that God wants us to remember that he can deliver us from whatever is our plight. And even as Moses was destined to be, to be murdered by a king who did not want the Jewish people to flourish, he was rescued by that little ark that was put in the Nile River, and God rescued him. But as we think about God's plan, God's plan takes time. And so we see some things that happen in the life of Moses. And as we look at how God works in our lives, God doesn't always show up in the way we want him to. And he doesn't always show up in exactly the timing that we want. But God's timing is always right. Well, today what we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at becoming significant. But really, as we look at becoming significant, and, and the whole idea here is as we look at our lives, and sometimes we look at our lives and we, we feel that uh, uh, really no one knows us, or, and if they do know us, they don't really care about us. And, and we often really desire that we would be prominent, that maybe we could be a place where we'd be on stage and people would, would call our name and we would come up to the applause of everyone uh, who saw us there and just proclaim how good we are. But the reality is that most of us will never be on a stage like that. And sometimes we think about that because I'm not prominent, then I'm not significant. But the message of the story that's recorded to us in God's Word is that everyone can be significant. But it's just as we sometimes say in life, it's, it's not what you know, but who you know is what really matters. But as we think about that, to become significant, there is a process, and we're going to try to look at it this morning. So if you have your outline, let's look at it this morning. What, what, what's the process of becoming significant? What is the process of becoming the person God wants you to be? What's the, what, is, what is the process by which you really experience life? Not just hear about life, but really experience life and all that you, it was intended for you to be and to live out. Well, I, I want to put, let me just state in the beginning because sometimes I can get really complicated up here. So let me, let me state it right up in front, all right? Uh, the process begins this way. First of all, you begin by thinking you are somebody. And often this is where we begin. We think uh, that uh, we don't need anybody else. We don't need anything else because whatever we have right now is enough. And we think we're significant because we're, we're somebody, but the next process, you need to realize you discover that you really are not somebody. But thirdly, what I want to share with you this morning, this is the, the heart of the message, is you need to encounter the one who really is somebody. 
And some people actually skip that first step because, as we'll see, some people start their life and, uh, and they start their life being blessed in material ways way beyond most people experience. But what we're going to see this morning is, as we think about it, whether you skip the first step, you better get to that second step and understand there's a solution to that second step. Let's look at it this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter Chapters 2 and 3, we'll look at chapter 2 a little bit, and then we'll move on as we look at God's story for us, uh, becoming what God wants us to be and experiencing life to its fullest as we encounter the one who is somebody as we look at our lives in a, in a very straightforward way. First of all, you begin by thinking you are somebody, and we're going to look at the life of Moses, and if you remember the life of Moses, and we look at Exodus chapter 2, it began pretty well. Uh, the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was beautiful, and she hid him for three months. Now, any, any of you spend any time looking at baby pictures? Raise your hand. Do you look at other people's baby pictures, or your own kids' baby pictures, or your grandkids? Now, depending upon uh, you know, what attitude you, you have toward uh, the pictures you're looking at, either you think you're... you're the pictures you're looking at, either yours or your children's or your grandchildren, as soon as you look at it, what be- how beautiful they are, what beautiful kids I have, or what beautiful kids my kids have. But have you ever, now, sometimes I do this as by my profession, you know, sometimes I will visit people who just had their baby, and you go in there, and, and, and you know, some of those babies are just, I mean, they're, they're Gerber babies, right? I mean, you could put them on a on a baby bottle or a commercial. And then other babies you look at and you go, Whew. what am I going to say? You know, did, did any of your kids come out with a cone head? You know, one of mine did, all right? And, and what do you say? I mean, let's don't take a picture yet, right? Look at every baby does not look gorgeous, all right? Is that truth? Or am I speaking truth here? All right. Now, there, now, it might be beautiful to you, but I mean, the cone head. I mean, there's something wrong with that, right? But something about Moses, when, when he came out of the womb, they said, this is a good-looking kid. This is a beautiful kid. Now, we don't know if it's because of the beauty or somehow he had a halo around his head or whatever it might be. But somehow, that parent knew that God's favor was upon that child. But really, what we need to look at is beyond the external and recognize that God's favor is upon any child that comes. He loves every child out of the womb. But probably Moses was a pretty good-looking baby, and so it caught the attention not only of his parents, but when he went down that Nile, you had the queen, or at least the daughter of Pharaoh, seeing that child, was enamored by it, and rescued it into the palace of the Egyptian empire. And though this is... a this is something we don't really realize too much, and I share with you before. As you look at the story of Exodus, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an interesting way it's divided. The first chapter is probably about 350 years or so, and then the second chapter covers about 80 years, and then chapters 3 through 40 covers about a year, just a little over a year, maybe a little under a year. But as we look at Moses' first part of his life, he is now eating out of a silver spoon. Everything is going right for him. And we have a commentary on that in Acts chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, where it says this, And after he had been set aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. 
Some of us may that probably at least he knew three languages. He knew the, the Akkadian language, the Egyptian language, and the, the language of his native people, the Hebrew language. And he not only knew the languages, but he, but he could communicate. And he had, he had the power not only to speak, but the power to be able to do things that just brought him not just attention, but the admiration of people around him. And so Moses began his life thinking that he was somebody. But he found out pretty soon that having, having the gifts and abilities that people admire is not enough. It's not enough. And so he learns in his first 40 years that he's somebody. He looks good, speaks well, can do a lot of things. He has the material wealth of the Egyptian empire. He could have whatever he wants. He's a favored child of the, the one who was the daughter of the Pharaoh, who later on, as we look at history, we won't go through that this morning, probably became a Pharaoh as a woman, co-reigned with his bro- her brother for 20 or 30 years. But what happened? He he found out that he really wasn't somebody. And let's look at it from Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. First of all, I need to realize that he was, and just let's just, there's some debate about once once he was in the Pharaoh's court for 40 years, did people think he was an Egyptian? I don't think so. Number one, even when he was brought into Pharaoh's court, you didn't recognize his, his parents had him for three months. And Hebrew children, particularly male children, after eight days, that male child gets what? Circumcised. Well, that didn't happen in the Egyptian empire. And if it did, it happened much later. So from day one that he was in the Egyptian palace, they knew he was a Hebrew baby. And, and, and as you look at a lot of people from the Semitic line, there are certain physical traits that, that really kind of define them. And Steve Morris wants to come up here and to kind of show us some of the... No, we won't, we won't ask Steve to come up here. But there are certain traits, and they knew right away that he was a Hebrew, right? But he was a favored Hebrew. So as we think about that lineage of there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, he was connected to a despised people. But somehow he would, had escaped that. But he hadn't recognized, though, that he had power in terms of his ability to speak, his power and ability to do certain things with his hands, probably, and he was a place of prominence. He thought he could now be the deliverer of God's people because of his power. But look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. Now, in your outline, it's actually Exodus. Well, it's the right reference, but the wrong verse. But let me just read Exodus two fourteen and 15. But he said, uh, well, we'll back it up to verse 13. He went out the next day, this is Moses, and he, and he saw two Hebrews who were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, who, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. And then verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Here for 40 years, Moses thought he was somebody because of where he lived, what he possessed, who he knew, the Pharaoh's 
daughter who was now becoming soon to be the Pharaoh, a favored child. But he, but he knew his heritage. God had placed something in his heart that he was to deliver God's people. But he went out and tried to do his own, on his own. And previously what he did is he found some, an Egyptian brutalizing a Hebrew. And he, he looked both ways and struck that Egyptian and killed him. And, and he thought that he, he could just take it on his own. And so the next day he saw two Hebrew people arguing with each other. And here they say to the prince of Egypt... So you might be the prince of Egypt, but you're not the prince of the Hebrews. And he knew right then that the people he, were to, were, he was to deliver were going to resist him. And he had to flee from the land. In one day, two days, you want to count both experiences, he went from being somebody to being a nobody. And so he goes to Midian, and you heard that story last week, and He's now, he's now getting an occupation that he never thought he would. He's now a, a shepherd of sheep. And, it, and that was the lowest position in the Egyptian empire is to care for sheep. And he was now in a place where people knew not him, just like they knew not Joseph. And, and now he even named his first child a, a foreigner in a land. And he was, he was in a place that was not a place of prominence. But see, God, God is not so concerned about how prominent you are, but he, what he's really concerned about is how significant you want to be. And, and significance, as we're going to find, is, is in who you know and what are you trying to do. And Moses was going to be transferred from a person who thought he could deliver people to a person who could be empowered to actually deliver people. But as we saw last week, it does take time. 40 years of finding out he, thinking he was somebody, and then 40 years of finding out he was a nobody. And then he encounters God, who is a somebody, the somebody, and everything changes. Well, let's pick this up as we look at Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we really now encounter the one who is really somebody. And can I just share you really briefly? That's really what the church is all about. The, the, the church is not about our programs. The church is not about... Uh, our buildings, the church is not about the things that we do. But what the church is all about is pointing people to who God is and what he can do in our lives. That's the message of God's church. And so often at times we think, well, well God must be only working if, if I can hear his voice or I can see the dramatic. You know, it's interesting as you think about the entire scripture, it's all about Jesus. And there's so many parallels and illustrations of that throughout God's word. From Genesis 50 to Exodus chapter 1, basically what we have there is 400 silent years. God doesn't speak to anybody. We, 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 don't, we don't have them recording any events that God is participating in. We don't, we don't hear any spoken directions that people were to somehow take to heart and to live out. God's not speaking. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of what God did from the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, to the first book in the New Testament, at least in the order of the books we have, which is Matthew. And that period from Malachi to Matthew, you you know how many silent years there are? 400 silent years. 
Now think about it. If, if, if you see yourself and you have been told that you are God's chosen people and God is vitally involved in your lives, and yet, but yet now God has not risen up a prophet or anyone to speak directly from God to you, what are you starting to think? God must have forgotten about me. God must not care. God must not be involved in my life. You know, there's a book in the Old Testament in which the book of Esther, in which the word God is not even mentioned in the entire book. Does that mean God's not involved? God's involved in everything. But sometimes he doesn't do that, which is dramatic, but he's, but he's always there knocking at the, the door of our hearts saying, just trust me, just trust me. Just trust me. And, and so now God is going to show up, and, and now he's going to test the heart of Moses and say, do, do you really want to be significant? Do, do you really want to do that, which you know you've been called to do, which is to be an instrument of, of mine to, to deliver my people? And so he encounters them, and we pick it up in Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the, the priest of Midian, and he, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then Horeb means desert, and it's, there's another name for Horeb. It's Mount Sinai, which means bush, and it's described as the mountain of God. And we're, we're going to know it about a little bit later. This is the place where God gives the Ten Commandments. But he's out, and he went from the palace to the desert. I, I remember... Um, in, in our ministry, we, we used to uh, had a ministry at the beach, and then we went to the desert, and now we're back to the beach again, which is, we're not back to the promised land. But, you know, he, he was now in a desolate place, just tending sheep, thinking that's all he would ever do, just work with animals. But God had a different plan. He wanted him to work with a different kind of flock, people. And then it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Now, just stopping there, and again, God has been silent for 400 years. So he's not, he's not looking around every day saying, what's God going to do today? What's going to be my God moment? What, what, what dramatic thing is God going to do? I mean, he hadn't heard anything from God. But now he sees something that says, hey, this kind of strikes my interest. Here's a bush that's, that's burning but it's not being consumed. It's, this, this is an amazing thing. Let's, let's go look, take a look a little bit closer. So Moses said, I must turn aside. He's kind of talking to himself. That's what happens. You're out in the desert and there's nobody around. I must talk, you know, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight and why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, it's interesting here, if you've got a Hebraic mind here, when, whenever, whenever in Scripture you hear something repeated, it's for emphasis or for a statement of um, endearment, where this, this is important. If, sometimes we do that, and even our own culture, if... if if, uh, if you're talking to someone, you might call out their name, but if you really want to get their attention and turn, depending upon the, the tone of voice, it's like, um, Matt, Matt, or Alice, Alice. And, and, and so he emphasizes, Moses, Moses. And, and so now he sees this bush that's burning but not being consumed, and now this bush is speaking. Now, this, this, this had to be shocking to him, right? 
And, he, and, this, and this bush continues to speak, and it says this. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing here is holy ground. And he also said, I am the Lord God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now I want to stop here just for a moment. He encounters God in the most dramatic way and personal way that he'd ever encountered God. And, and what is he now learning at the depth of his heart and soul? Well, first of all, I put this in your outline, that, that he is knowable. It's one thing, as people talk about God, usually they think of the, the man upstairs, uh, that, that uh, the big father in the sky, whatever it might be, but I, I want you to understand that the the word of God is very plain in speaking about God. And the first thing we need to know about God is that, that he is knowable. And, and what we need to understand here is that God approaches Moses, not Moses approaching God. You know, when Jesus came here, he said in Luke 19, 10, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And as we think about knowing God, I guess the first step here is that we've we got to know that we need to know him, right? We've got to know that we are lost. Now, those who have been at Grace Hills for any length of period of time, you know I have a kind of a legacy of getting, um, getting, um, getting lost. And, and, and they almost have me on a leash whenever I go anyplace, when I go on, church, on family gatherings. And so when we went out snowmobiling, that there was, every time I went out, they said, okay, you, your responsibility is, is keep Mike in your sights, all right? And Mike, your responsibility is make sure you keep your cousin in sight. And I'm glad they did that because you, you go out on some of these uh, snowmobile runs, I mean, it was about 10 minutes into those, I have no idea where I'm at. I have absolutely no idea where I'm at. And fortunately, they, they wanted me to get back, so they kept kept me in their sight. But as we think about Moses, he just, he was far from God at this point. He, he hadn't heard from God. He hadn't seen God. He had no idea what God wanted him to do at this point. And God shows up. Now, I don't know what it's going to take for God to show up in your life. What God's going to have to do in your life to know that you're lost without him. But that was a step that Moses had to experience and take. And so God shows up, speaks to him, and calls out his name, Moses, Moses, and here I am. But then he speaks in his life, okay, God shows up, but as we think about who God is, the God who is noble, who wants to find us, we need to recognize what is true about him that brings us to that place where we, we don't casually go into his presence. Now, he's out in the desert, and he sees this burning bush. God speaks to him, and he tells him to take off his what? His sandals. And you're thinking, why? Because he said, this is holy ground. Now, there was nothing about the dirt that was holy, but God's presence was illustrating this because I am holy. You approach me in a holy manner. 
Now, the word holy has the idea of purity, but really what it means is you, you approach me in a different way because I am different. I am totally unlike you, and you need to recognize that. Did anybody grow up in a family where um, they had, like, white carpet or very light carpet? And so when you came into their house, you, you were told you had to take off your shoes. Anybody have that? Okay, I'm not, you know, my mom's in the second service. I'm not going to repeat this. Well, I might repeat the illustration, but we could not go in a living room with, that, with our shoes on. Now, it's interesting. My, my, my daughter, Cindy, uh, who lives on Lake Arrowhead, and, and they have a home, and I went in their house, and I just traipsed in. She goes, take off your shoes, Dad. I go, w- w- what the heck? And, you know, I don't know what I said. But anyway, so, but she has very light carpet. Now, every time we go in her house, I got to take my shoes off. I have to go into her house differently than I go into my own house. And see, that's an illustration basic of uh, as we approach God, we need to recognize he is holy and we are not. There is that which separates us from him. And and we better better recognize that or we will never be able to know him. Some people think that, you know, it might be a good option to know God. No, there's not a good, we all need to know God. Because there's something wrong in our life. And that's what the Bible calls sin. So what do we know about God? God is holy. God is noble. God is holy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, we have a lot of time to turn there. But he says, look, I want you to understand that God is holy, and I want you too to be holy. Now, again, holy is not I'm better than you are. Holy is not self-righteousness. Holy is not that that I want people to be impressed with me, but to recognize that God wants me to live in such a way that I live according to his likeness, according to his image, and I, I want to be what God wants me to be. So he comes in his presence, tells him to take off his shoes, and, oh, by the way, remember that song we just sang this morning about raising up, what kind of hands? Holy, holy hands. Have you, ever, have, you ever, have you ever been around people who are really into that holy hands kind of idea? Which, I mean, basically you're talking about holy hands or what kind of hands? Clean hands, right? Uh, Cindy married into a fireman's family, and her, her husband's brother, Brian, uh, was a fireman and now teaches in school and stuff like that. And he, he, he saw me wash my hands. He said, you're not doing that right. I go, what do you mean I'm not doing it right? I put soap on it. And he said, well, you did it in about five seconds. Does anybody know how long you're supposed to wash your hands? 22 seconds if you're a fireman, all right? So, uh, you know, and, and basically, when you raise up holy hands, you go, what in the world is that? Is that just some kind of religious ritual? What, what are you saying? When you approach me, I, I want you to come to me in a clean way. I, I want you to take the time. You know, when you only wash your hands for five seconds, to do 22 seconds, this takes forever. Isn't that true? How many of you actually wash your hands for 22 seconds? Three of you do. All right. So, so, so anyway, but you know, if we're, if we're willing to do that, basically when you come to God's presence, take some time to look, allow God to put his spotlight in your heart and say, is there anything in your life that needs to be confessed? And confession is simply saying, is agreeing with God with what is reality. And, and when I do something wrong, I, I need to admit it. I need to acknowledge that I, I, have, I have done that which displeases God. And when I come into his presence, I, I, I want to come with a clean heart, with clean hands. I want to spend some time. And, and usually when I, 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 I usually spend about as much time washing my hands as I do with confession. God, uh, hope everything's right, and then I go on, right? No, spend some time. God, 
how have you been talking to your wife? How have you been treating the people around you? Have you, have you been doing that which is really important, or is it only what you want to do? How, how selfish have you been? How, how have you been concerned about the needs of others more than your own needs? You know, it takes time to allow God to speak in your life and say what things are right and what things are wrong. Would you agree with that? So when we lift up holy hands, it's not a religious ritual, but it's a symbol saying, God, I, I want my hands and my life to be clean before you. When you, when you take off your shoes, going to somebody's house, might, might it be a reminder, God, I, I want to come into your presence in a right way, in a holy way. But then he goes on in verses 7 through 9. He says, The Lord said, I, will, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place where these other tribes have been. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me for, forevermore, for I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So we find out that God is noble because he, he approaches, he reveals himself to Moses in a bush, a, a burning bush, a fire representing his holiness and his presence. He, he reminds him of his holiness, so you've got to take off your shoes because I want you to come to me in a different way. I want you to come with a holy heart, a pure heart. But then he says, I want you, I want you to know about what I'm going to do. This is who I am, but I'm noble and I'm holy, but I want you to know this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be God's way out for my people. I, I, I'm going to deliver my people. Now, to be delivered, you, you have to know that you need to be delivered. And, and the Hebrew people knew that. They were crying out desperately to God. And he heard their voice. In Exodus chapter 2, it says that he remembered his promises to them. You know, when God says to remember something, and when God says he remembers, it's not simply that God calls back to mind, and God never forgets, but calling back to the frontal part of his memory bank and thinking about it at that moment. It's not simply calling back something to your mind that you now remember what was in the past. But when God remembers something, it's for the purpose of now doing something. And, and when you take communion, you know, at a communion table, and it says, remember the cup and the, and the bread, it's not simply to remember what Jesus did in the past, but say, because of what he's done in the past, I want to live differently now in the present. And, and so he was announcing to them, okay, I've heard their voice, I'm going to act and I'm going to deliver them. Now, this is good news for Moses because he had seen the oppression of God's people. But then, but then he moves on, okay? okay. And now it begins to shock him because I'm going to do this, but you know, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be involved in this process. And we need to recognize when we talk to God, and when we talk to God, we call that what? Prayer, right? When we pray, almost every time we pray, we ought to, Remember that when we pray, are we willing to be used of God to be part of the answer to that prayer? So often when we pray, say, God, will you do something? Will you change this? And will you cause someone else to do that or do that? Look at when we pray, and I'm sure Moses had prayed that, that cry for God to deliver his people. And particularly in these last 40 years, when we recognize that he wasn't really as 
the somebody he thought he was. He had, he had quit praying that prayer. But now God was going to call him into service. And now God was going to shock him. I want you to be the answer of, God, of all God's people's prayers and the prayers they used to pray. Now let's look at it as we read on. He says, Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people to the sons of Israel and out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And, and what I should bring the sons of Israel, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. He said, look, I can't do that. Number one, I'm a failure. Didn't work the first time. Number two, I'm a murderer. They don't even, they don't even want me to come back. And he says, I, I don't think I have the ability to do what you want me to do. In verse 12, and he, this is God, says, certainly I will be with you. And that shall be the sign to you that it is I who have, who I have sent when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this moment, at this mountain. Now, I just want to make a very simple observation of this text. Moses comes to God after God says very plainly, I'm sending you. (laughs) You're not sending me. I can't do it. I don't think I have the ability and the people I'm going to, they don't want me to come. Now, if you've ever been in in an experience where you're, you're trying to help someone do something they think they can't do, anybody been in that experience? It could be at the, at the elementary level. You're teaching them to, to read or, or to, to learn a, an instrument for the first time or whatever it might be, okay? And, and they say, I can't do it. I can't do it. Now, normally our response is when they say, I can't do it, we tell them what? You can do it. You, you know, that little, what was that little thing that went up the hill? You, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Well, anyway, so, Huh? The train, the little train that went up, yes, I, yeah, yes, I can, yes, I can. You know, we're all into, yes, I can, you can do it. Just believe in yourself, right? Just believe in yourself. And, and just think about that for a moment. If you're hearing that, you're thinking, you think I can do it, but I know I can't do it, right? But, you know, then we just turn up the volume or use more illustrations or get more enthusiastic. Yes, you can, yes, you can. You know, God doesn't do that. He doesn't try to pump up Moses' self-esteem, his sense of self-worth, he doesn't point out all of his abilities. He doesn't even go back to his first 40 years in Egypt. He doesn't tell me, hey, look, at you were powerful in words. You did uh, experience power, power in deeds. He doesn't tell that. I'm not saying you have the ability, but what I'm telling you, that I have the ability, and I'm going to go with you. And that gets back to it's not what you know, but who you know. Now, the Bible says that if God is for you, then... Who can be against you? So as we think about God calling us to live the life he's called us to live, he uses our natural abilities and talents. And we ought to have a a sense of where our strengths and weaknesses are. But sometimes God will push us beyond what we think we are capable of doing. And you know what God is saying to you? Just believe I'm going to be with you. You ever been in that situation where um, um, maybe it was a little bit on the risky side and maybe uh, uh, everything changed because a particular person was with you? And that's what he's saying. If you want to do that what's significant, remember the message of this book in knowing the God that is noble, who is holy, who is giving you the way out, 
is I will be with you. It hasn't been that long since, since Christmas. And one of the names or titles of Jesus is Emmanuel, which simply translated, Matthew chapter 1, is God is with us. So then he goes on, and, and Moses says, okay, you're with me, but I'm not sure I'm convinced. So then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the son of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, there's a lot we could unpack in this passage, but we don't have the time to do that. But I just want to make a very simple statement. As we think about who God is, he's noble, holy, and he's the way out. Who we are, we are needy. And that's basically what he was saying Moses was saying to him when he said, like, I'll be with you. In John 15, 5, Jesus said this to, to all of us. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can bear much fruit. And in this particular point, he goes from being recognized he was needy. He says, well, I don't have the authority to do this. If I go there, even if I had the power to do something, they might not let me do it. So what, what gave you the right to do that? And I'll need to go back to the last experience. Said, who made you prince of the Hebrew people? Well, he can now say, well, God did. You tell him, I am has sent you. That I am is the one who is and will be. The one who is the self-sufficient, the dependent, eternal one. The one who has all authority in heaven on earth. And isn't that what Jesus said to us? In Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, he said, go therefore into the entire world. And make disciples. And I have all authority in heaven and on earth to send you out. And then in Acts 1, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And so as we think about the story of Moses being sent out, there was a process. He had to learn that he was one who thought he was somebody, but found out really he really was not somebody. But then he encountered the one who is somebody. He encountered the one who is noble, who is holy, who is the way out for God's people. He recognized on his part, he had to recognize his own need. I I can't do this. And God said, I'll be with you. And then he had to recognize that, that we have the right to be the people God wants us to be because God has placed his hand upon his people. So, so the question for each one of us is, uh, where are we today in our walk with God? Now, some people, quite frankly, they, I mentioned earlier, they, they skip that first step because they, they, they still think they are somebody. I don't need God. And, and if you think you don't need God, then at that moment, you will never know God. Because we all have to come to that place where we, first of all, admit our need. Isn't that true? You can never have a need met unless you feel that there is a need that needs to be met. I, I share with you many times that, you know, I, uh, one of the most embarrassing times in my life is I, I was out body surfing some of the, uh, out in Moonlight Beach down past Carlsbad, Oceanside area, and, and I, I, was, I was swimming out there, and I, was, I thought I was doing great, but then, a, then there was this lifeguard came out to me, and and he almost gave me a chokehold, bringing me back. I said, what are you doing? I said, well, you're drowning out here. I said, I'm not drowning. 
You'll, you'll never be picked up unless you feel you need to be picked up. And Moses had to go through 80 years of training to get to the place where he recognized that God needed to be the one who would always be with him. And when he would get opposition to whatever he was called to do and to be and recognize that what he was doing is what God had called him to be, the I am, the totally dependent and faithful one who would be faithful to his promises. So this morning as we close, and I just want to ask you, where are you in your relationship with God? We all have to come to that place where we recognize that we aren't really sufficient in ourselves. So that we might get the applause of men, but we really are really a nobody without the somebody. The so what is, know the one who is significant to be significant and do what is significant. Moses couldn't be used of God to be the deliverer of his people until he recognized that the real deliverer is the one who came. And he encountered on that day in the desert where God showed up in a symbolic way in, in the burning bush to say, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And later on, eventually, he says, send me. Let's pray together. Father, all of us are at different levels and different places and stages of life. And that is true physically, but it's also true spiritually. And Father, you, you, you love each one of us, no matter where we are in our stage of life. But Father, I would pray that each one of us might be, simply be open to what you're trying to say to us. See, really, th- th- there's good news here. The good news is, is that you can take anybody and make them a somebody because they know the one who is the someone. And Father, it all begins with A, admitting our need and turning from that which is wrong in our life, our sin. Be believing that Jesus is the one who came to rescue us. He came to seek and save that which is lost. And then commit, choose to believe that Jesus is God and he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And that he can give us life, abundant life, eternal life, and life that makes a difference because you're the one who can change everything within us and make us new. Help us to make that step of faith. And if we've already made it, then to just in a fresh new way say, God, all that you are, I want you to be, make me to be all that you want me to be. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.